Well, welcome to Big Valley Grace, especially if you're here for the very first time. Welcome to everybody over in the venue, and sure appreciate all of you that serve over there. Uh, Pastor Jared, thanks for leading worship and, and all of that. And if you're watching online, we're, we're glad you're with us. Uh, maybe you're listening on the radio or whatever. Just, just thankful that you would join us. Uh, take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 7. Okay, turn to Romans chapter 7 in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you today, all of the verses are inside your program. They'll show up on the jumbotrons. They'll even come up on your computer screen for all of you that are watching online. Uh, but let me encourage you, if you know Christ as your Savior, um, you know, when you're in school, you go to math, you know, you bring your math book, right? You go to history, you bring your history book. Okay, if you're going to physics, you bring your physics book. If you know the Lord is your Savior and you're coming to church, man, br br bring the book. You need, to have the, you need to have the book with you. And I realize that some of you use your smartphones. There's nothing wrong with that. I have found that it's a little easier when I sense that the Lord maybe is saying something to me through his word or whatever that I can just write it down way easier when I got my book here. I know you can do that on your smartphones. I get that. But it's a little bit more, more difficult. So let me just encourage you to bring your Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, you can go into the altar room when we're done. There's one over in the venue. And one of the things that we do is give away lots of Bibles, hundreds, thousands of Bibles here at Big Valley Grace, because we want to put the Word of God into your hands, okay? Now, Romans chapter 7, we're in a series where we're going through this letter that Paul wrote to the Christians that were in Rome. And uh, we're in chapter 7. In chapter 7, Paul answers this question. What does the law, the Old Testament law, the, the, the Ten Commandments, have to do with us as Christians? In other words, now that we've been baptized into Christ, now that we've been crucified with Christ, now that we've become followers of Christ, now that we've surrendered our lives over to Jesus Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity, what role, if any, does the law play in our lives as Christians? What role, if any, do those great Ten Commandments play in our lives? I mean, think about it. Paul told us in chapter 3 that the law doesn't save us. He said, no one will be declared righteous in his sight, in God's sight, by observing the law. In other words, trying your hardest to keep the law doesn't mean anything to God. It won't earn you any brownie points with God. Nobody's ever going to hear God say, hey, congratulations, you've made yourself righteous. You've made yourself holy because you've obeyed all my commands. Good job. You're now welcome into my kingdom. Nobody's ever going to stand before God someday and say, God, I, I, I kept your law perfectly. Never once did I break one of the Ten Commandments. And so you owe me heaven. You owe it to me. Because I, I, I've kept your law perfectly. In fact, listen to what Paul said in Galatians chapter 3 about the law. He said, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. If you think that somehow you're going to live out the Ten Commandments perfectly, the law perfectly, and somehow that's going to get you into heaven, you're cursed. If that's what you think. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Beloved, as beautiful and amazing and majestic as the law is, and we're going to talk more about that in just a moment, if you're living your life under it, you're cursed. Why? Because the law can't fix the problem of sin. The law has no power to redeem you. Not because there's a problem with the, the law. It's holy and righteous and good. The problem is you. The problem is me. The reason the law doesn't make anybody holy and righteous is because we as human beings are so vile and ungodly. The law couldn't possibly fix us. 
It was going to take something far more powerful than a few holy words written on some stone tablets to fix the problem of sin in our lives. Listen to what God said through the great prophet Jeremiah. He said, can the Ethiopian change his skin color or the leopard its spots? And the answer is no, of course not. Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Basically what God is saying here is that we're all doomed. We can't change the effect that sin had on our lives. We don't have the power to change our sinful nature or our Adamic nature. And that's also true of the Ten Commandments. They don't have the power to change us. Now, they do play a role in our lives, and as I said, we're gonna talk about that more in a moment, but they don't have the power to change the problem that sin brought, okay? Now there's good news. God said this through the great prophet Ezekiel. He said, I'll give you a new heart. I'll give you a new heart. And I'll put a, a new spirit in you. I'll take out your stony, stubborn heart, your, your sinful heart, your evil heart. A heart that you have because of what Adam did in the garden. And I'll give you a tender heart. I'll give you a responsive heart. Beloved, we can't change what sin did to us. We can't change what sin did to our hearts. The Ten Commandments can't change what sin did to our hearts, but God can. He alone has the power to change our hearts. He can fix the problem of sin because he's all-powerful. God, through a relationship with his Son, Jesus Christ, changes hearts or transforms hearts. Not, not the Ten Commandments. Not, not, not the law. But if that wasn't enough, Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 6 that after you're made you know, uh, holy and righteous through your relationship with Jesus, the law, the Ten Commandments, doesn't have the power to keep you holy. In other words, the law has nothing to do with your sanctification. It doesn't make you holy, and it doesn't keep you holy. And then last week we saw that as a follower of Christ, the law no longer has any jurisdiction over you because you've died in Christ. And when a person has died in Christ, the law has no authority over a dead man. Look at verse 1, okay, of Romans chapter 7. Just look at verse 1. He says, now, dear brothers and sisters, he's talking to Christians. He's writing to the Christians in Rome, but this applies to us. Those of you who are familiar with the law, I think he was primarily talking to the Jews that had become Christians in Rome, but certainly there were Gentiles who would have known the Ten Commandments. There are some of you in this room over in the venue watching on, online. You don't know the Lord, but you've heard of the Ten Commandments, right? So he's talking to Christians, and he's talking to those who would have been familiar with the law. Don't you know that the law only applies only while a person is living. Beloved, the law is only binding on the living. And when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, you died with him, which means you've been set free from the bondage and the authority of the law. Praise God. All of us at one time were under the law. If you do not know Christ as your Savior here, you are under the law. You're married to the law. And the law is a very hard taskmaster. There's no wiggle room with the law. There's no grace with the law. You keep it perfectly or you're doomed. There's no, well, you know, if... Uh, I know God says thou shall not lie, but uh, he'll, he'll, he'll give me what? What, three or four? Do I get a couple of, you know, get out of jail free cards with the law? No! There's no wiggle room with the law. If you're under the law, man, that's a bad place to be. And all of us in this room at one time or another were under the law. Some of you still are. But as soon as you gave your life to Jesus Christ, you died with him, right? 
So you're no longer under the law. You've been released from the bondage of the law. And now you have this new beautiful relationship with Christ. You've been bonded together, fused together with Jesus Christ in a beautiful way. And Jesus is nothing like the law. Jesus is full of grace and mercy and love and compassion and all those wonderful things. In fact, let me give you three things that a relationship with Jesus brings, okay? Number one, a relationship with, with Jesus brings a new freedom. Look at verse four of Romans seven. Paul says, so my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ and now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. Obviously that's Jesus. Beloved, you're not under the law anymore. You're now united to Jesus Christ. And this, you know, being united with with Jesus brings a new, fresh freedom. A freedom that you didn't have when you were under the law. Number two, a relationship with Christ brings a, a new purpose. So my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point, you died to the power of the law when you died with Christ and now you're united with the one who was raised from the dead and then here it is. As a result, as a result of this new relationship that you have with Christ, now that you're, you're, you're under this beautiful umbrella of Christ, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. We have a new purpose. Your your new purpose is to bear fruit for God. Now that God has given you a new heart, now that God has taken care of the problem of sin in your life, now that God sent Jesus Christ, the gospel, to fix your great problem, he wants you to live differently. He wants you to live a holy life, a righteous life. He wants you to live a life that bears fruit for him. And this makes sense, doesn't it? If you truly understand the impact that sin had on your life, if you truly know what sin did, the condemnation that sin brought, and you understand you couldn't fix the problem, but that God loved you so much that he sent the second person of the Holy Trinity, his Holy Son, to come and die on a cross, be put into a tomb and walk out of the grave. He did it all for you. When you really understand that, then it kind of makes sense that we would want to go and bear fruit for the Lord, right? That we'd want to live differently. This is one of the great themes of the Bible, that the transformed life always produces fruit. Somebody who really knows Christ is going to produce fruit. Listen to these words of Jesus in John chapter 15. He said, by this, my father is glorified. And when you hear a sentence like that or a little phrase like that, for those of you that are older, this is an E.F. Hutton moment, right? (laughs) To stop whatever you're doing and listen, perk up your ears. Jesus is going to tell us as one of his followers, this is how you can bring honor to God. Here's how you can bring glory to God. This is how the Father is glorified. How? How does that happen? That you bear much fruit. That you live differently. That you live holy. That you live a righteous life. And then he goes on, Jesus says, and so prove to be my disciples. That's an interesting phrase. You see, how I know that I'm a a disciple of the Lord isn't because I said a prayer. (laughs) It isn't because I put money in an offering basket. It isn't because I, you know, uh, come to church or own a Bible. Those are all good things. But just because somebody comes to church or somebody owns a Bible or somebody throws some money in a deal or says a prayer, that doesn't prove anything. Just because you walked an aisle at a Billy Cram crusade doesn't mean a thing. Just because you walked forward here and went into the altar room last weekend doesn't mean a thing. Doesn't prove anything. It just means your legs are working. You could get up and go into that room. That's all it means. I know I'm a follower of Christ because I've bared fruit in my life over the last 30 years. I was saved at this church if you're visiting. 
When I showed up here a long, long time ago, I was a scoundrel, trust me. I haven't always known the Lord. And those of you that have been around here as long as I have, and there's a bunch of you, you've seen my life change. See, what proves the fact that I really am a disciple of the Lord isn't that I said a prayer. Nothing wrong with a prayer. I said a prayer, by the way. It's that my life was changed. I began to live differently. The power of God within me began to play itself out in how I chose to live. I shared with you last week that the greatest way that you will bear fruit is this. Romans chapter 8 says, For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son. You see, there was a moment in your life when you were in darkness. Sin had just totally blinded you. You were unrighteous. You were ungodly. You didn't care about God. You didn't want anything to do with God. But God in his great mercy began to draw you to himself. He began to open your eyes to the truth of what sin had done in your life. He began to peel back the scales so that you would see the truth of sin. He began to do that work in your life. He revealed to you what Jesus did on the cross and what Jesus accomplished at the resurrection. He revealed that to you. He's the one who allowed you to become one of his followers. And he didn't give you the faith to receive his son so that you could continue just to live in sin. So that you could continue just to live the same old way that you used to live. No, he saved you that you might be more and more transformed into the image of his son. Now, you're never going to be anywhere close to Jesus. Never. But God had a purpose, and that is you would become more like his son. You would think like his son. You would respond like his son. You would stay away from the things that the, his son stayed away from, that you would get involved in the things that his son got involved in. And let me tell you, the more you're transformed in the image of his son, I guarantee you, your life will bear fruit. Guarantee it. So put a picture of Jesus up on your refrigerator and go, that's the goal. That's who I'm supposed to be, so to speak. That, that's who you want to be like. He's the guy. And the only way you're going to know how to be like him is right here. This book right here. There's no way you can know how you're supposed to be if you don't know anything about this book. See? Once again, you don't become a Christ-like, fruit-bearing person by keeping the law or by observing a bunch of rules and regulations, you become a Christ-like, fruit-bearing person by spending time with Jesus. That's how it works. And you can't, you know, somebody who says, well, I spend a lot of time with Jesus, but I never read his word, that's just an oxymoron. It doesn't work. Spending time with Jesus and the word of God go hand in hand together. Okay? And the third thing, neat thing about a relationship with Jesus is this, is that a relationship with Christ brings a new motivation. Verse 6 of Romans 7 says, But now we have been released from the law, for we die to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. In other words, now that you've been released from the curse of the law and are in this new, fresh, beautiful, grace-filled relationship with Christ, you now serve out of a different motivation. You now serve out of a heart of gratitude. You now serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Look at God still expects you to obey Him. Okay? When you gave your life to Christ... You know, Jesus doesn't say, hey, just blow off all the stuff that the Bible says. You don't have to obey anymore. No, 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 no. God still expects you to obey him. What changes is your motivation or the why. Why I now want to live a holy life, a righteous life. Why I, why I want to be like Jesus. You see, we serve the Lord because we love the Lord. That's our motivation. 
If you're living under the law, man, I got to do all these things because if I don't do them all perfectly, you know, God's going to just, you know, flick me off the planet. He's going to thump me. And so you, um, you keep doing things, hoping that somehow he'll be okay with you. And like I said, the law isn't a very loving thing. You either do it or you're doomed. You either do it perfectly or you're in trouble. But now that we know Christ, now that Christ is in our lives, now that he's cleansed us of our sins, now that he's made everything right between us and God, now that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, however you want to put it, wow. The motive for obeying is just so different. It's because we recognize how beautiful he is how majestic he is, how grace-filled he is, how compassionate he is, how much he loves us. So it's a no-brainer to want to serve him. Let me share with you this thought real quick. I, I think the reason a lot of people quit serving the Lord around here at Big Valley Grace or quit volunteering or quit helping out is because they started serving or helping out of the wrong motives. They got involved at a guilt or they felt pressure into serving or they got involved because they somehow felt obligated or because I stood up here and, you know, yelled help or whatever. For some of you, you got involved in serving simply for the prominence that it brought into your life. And none of these are legitimate reasons. The only reason for serving the Lord, the only reason for having a ministry is because you love Christ. You love his church. You love the body of Christ. We, we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not the old way of the written code, not, not from duty, but out of love. Look, if you get involved in serving somewhere because, you know what, I just, you know, I know I'm supposed to, that'll end. At some moment, you'll just go, I'm done serving in the choir. I'm done playing guitar. I'm done, you know, working in the cafe. I'm done holding babies. I'm done mentoring kids. But when it's out of a heart of gratitude for what Jesus has done for, for you, it just changes everything. It just changes your whole, you know, thought process. So with all this said, it would make sense that Paul uh, would ask this question in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God, the Ten Commandments, is sinful? I mean, it doesn't save you. It doesn't do anything, right? It's just, it's a crummy taskmaster. There's all these things. He just slammed the law over and over. And so he's naturally thinking to himself, well, all these Jews that have become Christians or those Jews that might be in the church that day who don't know Christ, they're going to ask this question. Am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Am I suggesting that those 10 great commandments found in Exodus chapter 20 are somehow sinful? I mean, someone might ask, what's the purpose of the law then? I mean, if we're not under the law, but we're under grace, and the only thing the law did was frustrate and condemn us, then why don't we just get rid of it? Why don't we just throw it away and just look at the New Testament, right? In fact, it sounds like the law is somewhat evil, and, and maybe it is sinful. After all, it doesn't help me love God more, and it doesn't even help me love God less. So what is the purpose of the law, Paul. He's asking a great question. And Paul gives us a number of really important things about the law. And I'm gonna share one of them with you today. And then next week, if God doesn't come back, I'll give you a few more. Or if I don't die or whatever. So here's the first thing. Here's the purpose of the law. Here's why God had Moses walk down the mountain with the 10 commandments. Here's why. He's going to tell us. Number one, the law defines sin for us. The law defines sin. Verse 7, well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. It showed us our sin. 
I, Paul says, I would have never known that coveting is wrong. And that's number 10. If the law had not said, you must not covet. Beloved, one of the great ministries of the law is that it shows you what's right and what's wrong. People often say, especially in today's culture, it may be wrong for you, but it doesn't mean it's wrong for me. I mean, just because you believe that something's wrong or sinful doesn't mean I have to think it's wrong you know, or, or, or sinful. In other words, there's no such thing as absolutes, right? Well, in God's law, we see absolutes, don't we? Those weren't the 10 suggestions. They were the 10 commandments. God doesn't leave the job of determining what's right and wrong, you know, up to us as humans. We're doing that today. And that's why we got such a mess on our hands. Because we as human beings are just throwing out, you know, what God's word has is saying, we're just making stuff up. We're making up stuff that just is just crazy. I mean, just crazy. I mean, it's bloody crazy some of the things that we're coming up with as a culture here in America. Because all of a sudden, anything goes. Just anything. Who are you to, who are you to say it's wrong? Or who are you to say it's right? Who, who are you? In fact, there's pressure out there to shut up guys like me. Because who are you to tell me what I'm doing's wrong? Who are you to tell me how I'm living's wrong? Well, I'm not, all I'm doing is just simply sharing what God's word has to say. And you'll see how this all plays itself out here maybe in just a moment. You see, God is the one who determines what is good and what is bad. God determines what is holy and what is evil. God determines what's pleasing and what's unacceptable. Now, you may not like it. In fact, I want you to know your sinful nature won't like it. And I'm going to talk more about that next week. But God defines sin for us. And the cool thing is that God made sure that you'd know what his thoughts are. He made sure that you'd know exactly what things are cool to him and what things are sinful to him. That way there will be no confusion when you stand before him someday and give an account for your life. You'll never be able to say, hey, I, I didn't know God. How was I supposed to know? He'll say, I gave you the Ten Commandments. I gave you the law. And it was in that law that you could see how, how, how sinful you were. Friends, God left you his law so that you could know what God thinks about what is right and what is wrong. By the way, this is exactly what happened to Paul. Paul says that he would never have known what, that it was wrong to covet if the law hadn't said, do not covet. Now, I was fascinated this week by his choice of coveting. Why did he choose coveting? Why, why, why not murder or stealing or adultery or making an idol or honoring your mom and dad or something? Why, why coveting? Well, I think it's because coveting is different than all the rest of the Ten Commandments. Coveting is all about an inward attitude. The rest of the commandments basically have to do with an outward action. Think about it. In fact, let's look at the Ten Commandments. Let's just look at them just real, real, real quickly. N number one, God says this. Don't worship or have any other gods before me. Okay? Now, now the commandments are a mirror into your soul. So here we go, people. I know you looked at a mirror and it, it showed you what you looked like on the outside. And you all look fantastic. Well, let's just see how you look on the inside, okay? Because that's what the Ten Commandments were for. God says, I don't want you to have anything in your life that's more important than me, God says. Mm. For some of you, you don't even believe in God, so you've already blown the first one. God's already said, you fumbled. God's already said to some of you, you're sinful because you don't even believe in me. 
And God says, I don't want you to make for yourself an idol. I don't want you to worship something. I don't want you to have something in your home or in your life that you value more than me, that, that you would look at and say, wow, that's more important than, than God. Now, obviously, when that was written in, in Exodus, you know, they, they actually had little things that they would carve out of wood or whatever. Today, we may not have that necessarily in America, but let me tell you a phrase that I often hear from people. Hear from Christians too. It sounds good. It really, it sounds like a fantastic thought, but it's actually very sinful and evil. When I hear a parent say, my children are my life. Sounds good, huh? It's evil. Because he's supposed to be your life. He's supposed to be number one. You're to love him over everything else. Now, love your kids, love your spouse, I don't know, love your uncle, love your dog, I don't care. <laughs> God says, I'm number one. I'm to be your life. Number three, God said, here's the deal, I don't want you to misuse my name. My name's holy. My name's different. Don't mess around with my name. And you can look at that and go, well, that, I don't cuss and I don't swear. There's lots of ways to misuse the name of the Lord. Let me give you one that happens often. I'll have people come up to me and say, hey, I was uh, you know, praying the other day and the Lord told me to tell you, you just misused his name. Don't, don't do that. The Lord told you to tell me. You've just misused his name. Somehow you think you juiced up whatever it is you're going to say because you invoked his name. I'll often have people say to me, hey, you know, the Lord told me your next series is supposed to be on marriage. And then 20 minutes later, somebody else comes up and says, hey, the Lord told me to tell you you're supposed to do a series on something else. And I'll go, isn't that interesting, man? God's a schizophrenic. <laughs> he can't even get it straight because everybody's trying to somehow invoke the name of the Lord to somehow give juice to their thought. Look, just come up and say, hey, I think it'd be really neat if you did this. That works. But don't misuse his name and throw his name around like that. Then he said, I want you to take a day of rest. Not that you'd sit around and play, you know, watch football all day. But that this day would be really different. It wouldn't be like other days. It'd be a day where really I'm kind of maybe the centerpiece of the day. Like, like maybe you would set it aside and say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go and honor the Lord and worship him with my brothers and sisters. It's going to be a different kind of day. I want it to be special. I, 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 want, I want to be the center of that day. That's what I want. The first four all have to do with our relationship with God. Don't have any other God before me. Don't make for yourself an idol. Don't misuse the name of the Lord. And, and, and then, you know, keep one day and keep it special. And then the next six are all about how we relate to one another. Don't, he says, honor your father and your mother. Honor them. You don't have to agree with them, especially as an adult. As a child, how you honor them is you obey as an adult, I don't, I'm not called to obey my parents or my, you know, my parents. I'm an adult. But I honor them in how I treat them if I listen to their opinion and care about what they think. But I can walk out the door and go do whatever I want. I'm an adult. Then God says, I, I, I don't want you to kill anybody. Don't murder. And then he says, don't, don't, don't commit adultery. Then he says, don't steal things. Don't take pencils from work. Got, the boss didn't go out and buy pencils so you could take them home. Well, it's just a pencil. Yeah, but it ain't your pencil. Unless the boss says, hey, listen, I just bought all this paper and all these pencils. Take as many as you want. And I'll just keep buying them. Don't, don't, don't steal things. Don't take things that aren't yours. And then he says, don't lie. Don't tempt your kids to lie. Bring, tell them I'm not home. 
not only are you lying, but you're telling your kids to lie. You see, by the way, I could take all 10 of these and I did a whole series on them and I could just, we're all, we're all goofed up, every one of them. To break one of these nine, first nine, really requires you to take some sort of outward action. But number 10 is real different. Don't covet. Coveting deals with an inward attitude. And in my opinion, coveting might be the most insidious of all of them because most people never recognize it in their own lives. Obviously, there was a time when Paul hadn't recognized it in his own life. But God re- God's law revealed it to him, coveting, being, being content with what you have. Being okay with the clothes you have or the jewelry you have or the home you have or the apartment you have or the car that you have. Not, not looking at somebody else and going, man, I, I, really, man, I really like that or I really want that or Nothing wrong with having a nicer home and a nicer car. Nothing wrong with having nicer clothes. Nothing wrong with that. But it can all of a sudden take over. Where all of a sudden, you know, man, that becomes the thing that really, you know, kind of takes a hold of your life. I was thinking back, we used to have a man in our church. He's with the Lord now, but he, he used to own a red Ferrari. And every time I saw it, I just want you to know I coveted. <laughs> I mean... I, I can't help, I couldn't help myself. It was weird. It was just, I'm coveting. I'm spo- I, I would look at like the lug nut on the tire, which was worth more than my whole car and go, I just would take that lug nut and make it a, make it a paperweight. I could, uh, but I can't even afford the lug nut on the thing. I mean, it's un- unbelievable. <laughs> See, here's the deal. Let me tell you what I think happened. Those of you that know the story of Paul, Before he was Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. He was an unbeliever. Righteous man who lived under the law. And he thought that the law was going to get him into heaven. He thought everything was great between him and God. And I think one day he was doing a Bible study. I think he was having his quiet time. And he gets to Exodus chapter 20. He had memorized it. He knew the law. He knew the Ten Commandments, like the back of his hands. But one day he begins to kind of read through the Ten Commandments. And he sees number one and says to himself, man, I have no other God but you. He reads number two, I don't have an idol in my home. He reads number three, I've never misused your name. He reads number four and says, wow, man, I keep the Sabbath holy, man. I, I, I'm in the synagogue. I, I, I got you. Number five, I've honored my parents. I've, I've never actually killed anybody. Now, I've been around it, but I've never actually killed anybody. I've never committed adultery. I've never stolen a thing. I've never lied. I've never coveted. And he begins to think about it. And he begins to go, whoa, 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 whoa. Maybe things aren't all that good between me and God. And then those of you that know the story, he gets on a horse and he makes his way to Damascus. And while he's on that horse, the Lord knocks him off it and starts speaking to him. You see, I think long before the Lord knocks him off that horse and actually converts him, he was convicted by the law. And it was when he got to number 10, coveting, that he went, man, I, I, I think I got a problem. Yeah, you do. And so when Jesus shows up, it was a no-brainer for him when he begins to learn about Christ and the redemption that comes through Christ, it was just a, it was a, it was a no, no brainer for, for him. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter five, he said, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
Beloved, you, you can live an outwardly good life. You, you can live an outwardly moral life and fool a lot of people. And I think the first nine deal more with the outward. But you can't fool God because God not only sees the outward, but more importantly, sees the inward. The Lord said this through Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord can see past the makeup. The Lord can see past what you put on today. He can see past all that, and he sees what's in here. Now, I can tell you this. I've never committed adultery, never. But have I looked at some gal in a lustful way over my 56 years of existence? No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, that's just, you know, that's stupid. <laughs> I'm sure there's some preacher who would say, oh yeah, not me, I'm the preacher. Of course I have, I'm, I'm, I got this sinful nature. I, I, can, I looked at a Ferrari and thought it was hot. You know, it's a piece of steel. And you know what that makes me? Because in my 56 years of existence, I've looked at a gal in a lustful way. A sinner! Now, Hugh Hefner wouldn't say I'm a sinner. Some of you might be sitting out there going, I don't think that makes you a sinner just because you look at someone in a lustful way. But remember, you don't get to choose what's right and what's wrong. Hugh Hefner doesn't get to choose what's right or what's wrong. God does. And God said, it's sin. It's sin. As I said, the law... It's like a mirror. It just helps you look into the depths of your heart and it shows you what the inner man looks like. And unfortunately, it's not a pretty picture. I'm thankful that God let me know what his standards are. Aren't you a Christian? Because if he doesn't let you know what his standards are, what a bummer it would be to stand before him thinking everything's okay. The law was simply a, a tool that God used to show people how messed up they were. That's what it was for. Romans chapter 3 says, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we became conscience of sin. It was when they put a sign out on Tully Road that says, I can only do 35, that I knew when I was doing 40 I was sinning. If there's no sign on Tully Road that says I can only do 35, then how would I know I'm breaking the law? But once they put that sign up, <laughs> let me know. You go over 35, you're sinning. You're breaking the law. You say. Let me come at this another way as I wrap this up. God's heart is that none of us would perish. God doesn't want anybody to die and spend their eternity in hell apart from him. Peter wrote this, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anybody to perish, not wanting anybody to go to hell, not wanting anybody to, to die apart from him, but he wants everybody to come to repentance. That's the heart of God. He wants everybody to come to repentance. That's what he wants. That's his heart. He wants everybody to understand that sin has separated them from God and he wants everybody to repent. That's the heart of God. So if this is the heart of God, what did he do to make sure that people would know that everything isn't right between them and God? What did he do to help people come to repentance? He gave them the law. 
He gave them the mirror. And said, look, I don't want anybody to die apart from me. I want you to understand something. Look in the mirror. It shows you into your soul. You're, you're a sinful person. And I promised I was going to send a savior. I promised you I'd send a Messiah. You were made in my image. I promised all throughout the Old Testament, the 39 books in the Old Testament all promised this Messiah, all promised this Savior. And you get to the New Testament and, you know, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. The Savior's here. And it's in the law where we see our need for the Savior. It defines sin for us. The giving of the law was really a a love gift to us. It was never intended to save anybody. It was simply the tool that God was going to use to help you realize you were a sinner who needed the Savior. When Moses walks off of that mountain with those Ten Commandments, that was God saying, I love you. I love you. Look. Look at these ten things. How you doing? Well, I blew it. Yeah, you have blown it. You've blown it. You need a savior. Yeah. And I promise I'm going to send you one. And in the Old Testament, how you were saved is you just simply believed that God was going to send the savior. You simply had faith in the fact that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. They didn't know who the savior was. They didn't know the name of Jesus. They couldn't know the name of Jesus. But they just believed, okay, God, I believe that you're going to send the savior. Okay, great. Today, we know who the Savior is. And so what we do is we put our faith in Jesus, who's the Savior, you see? So this is the first of many of the purposes of the law. Next week, as I said, we're going to look at a few more of them. But here's the deal. There might be one of you here, maybe over in the venue, I don't know. And God has revealed some truth to you. He brought you here today for the purpose of understanding sin and the implications of it in your life and how much he loved you by sending his son Jesus for you. And we have a room called the altar room. There's one over there in the venue. And in just a moment, I'm going to pray. And if you're here and you've never given your life to Christ, if you've never dealt with the sin in your life, if you're still in your sin right now and you were to take your last breath, You're going to stand before God and you're going to be under the law. And God's going to say, you're guilty of this, you're guilty of this, and you're guilty of this. I will stand before him if I take my last last breath and I'll be under grace. And he'll see his son in my life. By virtue of the fact I have his son in my life, God sees me just as if I'd never sinned. And if you're here and you don't know Christ, you, you ought to get into the altar room and find one of our elders, spiritual leaders, one of our pastors and say, here I am, I, I need Christ, I need, I need Christ. And we'd love to pray with you. You can leave here a different soul. You can leave here dead to your old life, your old sin, but alive in Jesus Christ. <laughs> one of the great moments of life. But maybe you're here and this has been a tough week for you. You know, you, they found a lump where there's not supposed to be a lump and you're scared and you're nervous. And you can't fix normal. Anybody would be scared and nervous, but we have a place where you can go and say, would you pray for me? I'm a little nervous. Maybe you went in and had it x-rayed and they're, they're not gonna tell you what the report is until Thursday. Isn't that horrible? So for like four days, you're just, ah, what is it? Why don't you go in there? Why don't you let us pray for you? Maybe you're here and, I don't know, your spouse went nuts. So go, let's pray for you. Or, you know, you can walk out here and say, you know what? I don't care. I'll gut it out on my own. You can do that, and many of you will. That's fine. Or you can go into the emergency room and say, help me. I'm lost. I'm scared. I'm nervous. Maybe you've got a teenager that's gone sideways. Maybe you're here and you're a teenager and your parents gone sideways. 
all of a sudden your dad just went nuts. He's just drinking or I don't know what he's doing. Maybe it's your mother. Would you let us pray for you, young person? Would you come in there and say, help me? My family's blowing up. We'd love to pray for you. Maybe you're a businessman here and you're sucking wind right now and you, just, you, just, you need to close a deal or six and you're wondering, are you going to be able to make the payroll? Would you, would you let us pray for you? You're a part of a church family here. Maybe you're looking for a job. Let us pray for you. Maybe, maybe you're a, a college student. You've got a big test coming up. Would you, let us pray for you. That's what the altar room is for. Don't just run out of here, but let us, let us, you know, the church is in a lot of ways like a hospital. And so you come here, who, who would go to the hospital? Who would go to the emergency room and leave before they had their arm checked out or whatever the problem is? You, you don't. You, don't leave here until you let somebody pray with you. That's what the altar room is for place for you to go and just talk with somebody and they pray for you. Yes, I believe coming and singing songs and hearing a message and giving all is a healing process. It gets our eyes off of us and it gets us on the thing that matters and that's Christ. But you know what? Also afterwards, praying, having people pray is an important thing. So take advantage of it. Everybody stand up. Everybody stand up over in the, in the venue. Lord, thank you, God, for uh, this weekend, and last night was fantastic, and thank you for this morning, and all the music here over in the venue is just sacred, holy stuff, it's just different than what the world throws at us, just junk and crud and evil, it's just vile in most cases, but I'm grateful that we can come here and just sing these great holy songs, pray for our teenagers again as they our young people, as they go, serve you. I'm thankful for all of them. Blessings on them. Protect them. I do pray, God, and thank you in advance for the generosity of, of our people. It's crazy. It's crazy how generous our people are. Crazy generous. And Lord, whatever the number that comes in as it relates to the tuition assistance offering, Lord, I'll just trust that that will be enough. Lord, thank you for your word. And it is so dip, deep and rich and majestic. It's crazy how beautiful it is. Thank you for the law. And thank you for Jesus. Give us a great afternoon, and I pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, amen. amen. Okay, hey, get to the altar and blessings.